Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. And so we have one weapon, one weapon, and that, that one weapon in our spiritual warfare is the truth. In our human minds, there is a difference between the life we live now and the one that is to come when our earthly life is complete. We often separate things earthly from things divine as if they're unrelated. When Christ ascended to heaven and sent the Holy Spirit, it marked a new beginning. We don't actually have to wait till we die and go to heaven to experience Christ's Lordship. Stay tuned as we join Dr. Andrew Corbett now for the next In the Lordship of Christ series, The Fulfiller of Deepest Longings. As we have entered into what's known as Advent, which is where we consider the coming of Christ or coming of the Son of God or God the Son more appropriately, uh, we are focusing on one of the central doctrines of Christianity. And doctrine simply means a teaching. And when it's done well, it's a teaching that not only tells you what Christians believe, but, but why, why Christians believe it. So with that in mind, I want to uh, pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. So would you please join me in prayer? Father, I pray, Lord, that your shepherd's heart, your fatherly love, would not just be heard, but, Lord, would be experienced. For those who have felt so alone, as if no one knows, what they're going through, what they are facing, that, Father, right now in this time, your people, as Earl mentioned earlier in this service, would hear from you, that they would have that communion with you, that, Lord, you would speak and that we would hear. And I pray, Father, that when we're done, Lord, it would be that your people can feel the touch of the great shepherd protecting them, guarding them, leading them and feeding them. Father, I pray for this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, which means let it be. So the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ is the, the touchstone of what we might call orthodoxy. Orthos means right. Doxy means glory, so right glory. And I'm going to mention a, a, a few things that will highlight how down through the centuries this has been eroded and challenged and even today it keeps resurfacing and it does so in a very subtle way. One of the roles of pastoring is to protect sheep. I was reading Ezekiel 34 and God scolds the shepherds being the priests and the prophets and the princes and the kings of Israel for not doing that. And so I'm very mindful that we live in a, a society where we get this short time together through the week and through the rest of the week, you are being bombarded with things that has one mission in mind because according to Paul's writings, the God of this world has blinded the spiritual eyes of people from seeing the truth. And so we have one weapon, one weapon, and that, that one weapon in our spiritual warfare is the truth. And so this morning, I pray that you will hear some truths about 
who Jesus really is, the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Let me mention some of those errors that happened very, very early on in the church. And I'll be sharing some others in, in a moment. But this is these, this first one, when we talk about the Lordship of Jesus Christ, you've got some people who say that Jesus was created by God the Father. I will refer to him as Yahweh because that's the Hebrew word for God, Yahweh. And, and that he was given lordship. That's an error. It's not true. Jesus Christ has always been Lord. His kingdom is, according to the book of Revelation, chapter 20, an everlasting kingdom. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, where Daniel is given a vision of, of a transaction that was happening in heaven of Christ returning in the ascension to his father. And in Daniel, starting uh, earlier on in the chapter, it says, Then I saw one like the Ancient of Days, and unto him in the clouds of heaven came the Son of Man. Now that's Old Testament. That's Daniel chapter 7. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 24, you will see the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds of heaven, he's referring to that passage in Daniel. And that refers to his ascension back to the Father after he had accomplished the work of salvation. And Daniel says, And to him was given a kingdom and judgment, and his kingdom shall have no end. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. So Jesus, this first error, was introduced by a British monk by the name of Arius. It's known as Arianism. It's an error. It's, it, it, the idea is that Jesus was a created being and he attained to lordship. That's an error. The second error I want to point out is that because Jesus attained to this sense of divinity, you can as well. That's an error known as pantheism or put it in more up-to-date language, New Age. New Age thinking. New Age thinking is essentially pantheism, which is a form of Hinduism, that we are all gods, the universe is God. And so people looked at Jesus and said, well, he's the one who became divine because he attained to this enlightenment, and you can as well. That's actually a lie. And thirdly, is the idea that his lordship was actually dependent, co-dependent on his mother. Now, we, we are what you call a Protestant church. And for some of you, you're going to go Protestant, protesting. That's where it comes from, the word protesting. Protesting what? what, what where, where did this word come from, Protestant. Well, thank you for asking. Let me tell you where it came from. Because an error crept in relatively early, but like a lot of errors, it was a snowball error. It began as a small deviation, just a very small deviation from the truth. And it began in the second century when comparisons were made between Eve and Mary. The comparisons are obvious, both 
encountered an angelic visitor. One was to become a fallen angelic or more precisely a heavenly being. And the other one, Gabriel, was an in right standing heavenly being. Both of them received an encounter with this heavenly being, with a heavenly being, Mary, accepted the word from Gabriel and obeyed the word of the Lord. And as we heard Earl share over communion, Eve, as she was to become known, she wasn't in Genesis 2 or the early part of Genesis 3, she also heard the word of the Lord and she disobeyed at the the temptation of the manipulated serpent being manipulated by the creature that would become known as the devil. And because Eve sinned, she plunged the entire human race into sin. And the comparison is that because Mary obeyed God, she is now the means by which all people can be made right with God. This is an error that crept in second century. And it wasn't too long before it developed into the idea that Mary, therefore, was essential to our Redemption, that is being made right with God. And the term mediatrix, which means she is the mediator between God and man, crept in late second century. In the fifth century, in AD 431, and then 20 years later, AD 451, these were two church councils, one held at Ephesus and one held at Chalcedon. And they were... They were they were convened to, to combat an error, and in combating the error, they created an error. And the error is known as uh, Theotikos. Uh, <clears throat> uh, Theotikos, Theo, God, Tokos, mother, is the idea that Mary was now designated as Theotikos, the Mother of God. You may have heard that expression. Now, if you think about it, biblically, she wasn't the mother of God. She was the mother of the incarnate Son of God. God does not have a mother. Anyone like to take, take a stab why that is? Because he's uncreated. But when Christ, the second person of the Trinity, became human, took on human form, yes, she was his mother. But she didn't give birth to God in the sense of creating God. She gave birth to the incarnate Son of God. Now that was in the 5th century. And the idea was if she's the mother of God, then she couldn't have been contaminated with sin. So very soon after this, people began to speculate, if if we've got to call her the mother of God then she must have been born without sin. She must have been sinless herself. Now, this is completely contrary to the Scriptures. First, sorry, in Luke chapter 1, verse 47, it's called the Magnificat, where Mary is worshipping God after Gabriel has told her, you will conceive and bear a child. And she says, how can that be? I am a virgin. And he says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. It will be a miraculous conception so she just breaks out into worship and the first thing she does is she says in Luke chapter 1 verse 47 I rejoice in God my 
saviour. There's only one category of people that needs a saviour. Sinners. She identifies herself as a sinner. So for the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon, they completely ignored her own testimony and the testimony of Scripture, which goes on in Hebrews 4.15, Hebrews 7.26, 1 Peter 2.22, 1 Peter 3.18, 2 Corinthians 5.21, 1 John 3.15, Romans chapter 3, verses 9, down to verse 23. Do you get the idea that the Scripture is pretty clear about this? We are all sinners apart from Jesus Christ himself. And we all need a saviour. In the 13th century, a man by the name of John Duns Scotus proposed the concept of the Immaculate Conception of Mary. The idea was she herself was born without sin, the Immaculate Conception. Now, I want you to point out this is happening in the 13th century. This is happening 13 centuries after Jesus came, 13 centuries after the Bible was completed, and he has now developed an idea that is not just novel, that is, no one's ever heard of it before, but the idea that actually contradicts what the Scriptures actually say. And because of the lack of the availability of Bibles, Scriptures, at that time, people accepted it. Mary must have been without sin. In 1854, 1854, Pope Pius IX proclaimed, and here if you're a Catholic, you'll know what this means, ex cathedra, which means everything I'm telling you is infallibly true. That's what ex cathedra means. That Mary, indeed, had immaculate conception. In other words, she was conceived without sin. This became Catholic doctrine where Pope Pius IX said, if you don't believe it, you cease to be a Catholic. From that point on, from 1854, it was decreed by the Pope that Mary was now to be referred to as the Blessed Virgin Mary. In 1950, in 1950, that's a long time ago. In 1950, Pope Pius XII proclaimed ex cathedra that Mary did not die. Instead of dying, she had, she'd been ascended bodily to heaven. And he says that happened. I don't know how he knew this, but he said it happened on May 31st. And he must be right because he said he was infallibly correct. And so on May 31st, he declared that May 31st would now be the feast of the Queen of Heaven, Mary, Queen of Heaven. 1950. Just prior to that, four years prior to that, 1946, he proclaimed that Mary was worthy of worship and that she was exalted to the hypostatic union with the Trinity. She was now 
equal to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I don't know what the word Trinity means to popes in 1946. My math is not great, but um, anyway. He said this, Her kingdom is as great as her sons and gods. In 1962, 1962, that is for those who are doing the calculations, 1,902 years after Jesus was born, the Second Vatican Council decreed that Mary was to be worshipped along with the Father and the Son and that Christ was not our Redeemer, Mary was our Redeemer. And without Mary, there is no redemption. Can I tell you, that's why we're Protestants. That's why the Reformers in the 1500s began to say, hang on a minute, as the Bible was being published, coincides about that time, and people began to read the Bible, they said, hang on a minute, where are you getting this from? Because now we're reading the Bible in French, in German, in Latin, in English, and we're going, this actually says the opposite to what you're saying. And where do we land? We land with this. The Lordship of Jesus Christ, he is Lord because, wait for it, because he is. He is Lord. He is the supreme Lord. There is no one greater than God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He accomplished our redemption by himself from his Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I love my Catholic brothers and sisters, but we disagree. So I want you to to kind of really get this. This Jesus was unique, absolutely unique. New Ages, get it wrong. Arianism, and today that's called Jehovah's Witnessism or Russellism. Charles Taze Russell, who invented it. These are ancient errors that have resurfaced in the last few years. Here's a quote from, since we're talking about movies, here's a quote from Napoleon, since Napoleon's showing in town. This is what he said. Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overawes me and his his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Not even with his mother. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain, Napoleon wrote in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ or anything which can approach the gospel. Neither history nor humanity nor the ages nor nature offer me anything with which I'm able to compare it or to explain it. Here, everything is extraordinary about Jesus. That's Napoleon. This is taken from a great book by Philip Yancey called The Jesus I Never Knew. Strongly, strongly recommended. In fact, let me give you another quote from Yancey's book. According to Jesus, Philip Yancey writes, 
What I think about him and how I respond will determine my destiny for all eternity, says Philip Yancey. Philip Yancey is a great Christian writer. If you've got your Bible, and I hope you have, and if you're fortunate to have one of these things called a, a, a physical Bible, you can go to page, or that's a joke, isn't it? Because no, our page is never going to line up. John chapter 8, verse 56. I really want you to have a look at this. So let's, let's jump to there, please. John chapter 8, verse 56. And the, the message today is, is entitled, Abraham knew me in a way that you do not. And it's an odd title, but it's based on these couple of verses here in John chapter 8. You see, Jesus is, is in locked horn, so to speak, with the religious leaders of the day. They're in the temple precinct. John chapter 8, he, Christ has turned up at some of the most inconvenient times, often in the middle of the high, priest, uh, high feasts of, of Israel, part of their religious worship. He's turned up just in chapter 7, just at the point when they're bringing out the water for the ceremony of saying, you know, the water comes out of the temple. And then suddenly Jesus stands up and yells across the temple precinct, if anyone thirsts, come to me. Talk about bad time or good timing. When they bring out the, the lit candles, he says in another place with a loud voice again, I am the light of the world. Who does this guy think he is? And then in John chapter 8 and verse 56, he says this to the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. He says this, your father Abraham, because they've just told him, we know who our father is, which is a way of saying, we know you were born in sin because your mother, she's no way, virgins do not get pregnant. We know what that, what that story's all about. She is probably playing around like a harlot and you're the result. We know who our father is, they say to Jesus. You can, if you read between the lines, you're hearing a, a vicious attack on his credibility. <laughs> Does Jesus put his thumb in his mouth, reach for blankie and go and find a corner? Not on your life. One man against dozens of religious leaders attacking him publicly. And what does he do? Your father Abraham rejoiced that he saw that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. <laughs> what? Now... What are you saying now? You see, one of the errors of identifying who Jesus is, that he was just one of the various types of expressions of God who in the Old Testament revealed himself as God the Father. In the Gospels, the same God revealed himself as God the Son. And from the book of Acts, he revealed himself as God the Spirit. And so really the Trinity is just one person sort of presenting himself three different ways. That is a lie. It's an error. It's not true. It's called modalism. And you need to hear this. You need to hear people when they say things like this and realize that's not true. And why is it not true? 
because we see in scriptures in from the opening verses of Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And God said. And then we read in Colossians that it was Jesus who activated the creation of everything. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And only God possesses eternality. And God the Father is described as the eternal Father. God the Son is described as the everlasting Son. And the Spirit in the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, is described as the eternal Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. John the Baptist sees Jesus come into the water as Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the water. We hear John the Baptist say that he heard a voice come from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then he said, and I saw the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus like a dove would come upon Jesus. There's Father in heaven, booming voice. There's the Son of God and there's the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus. Trinity, this is not a made up teaching. This is something God is, God is and he has revealed to us. That he is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And that Jesus Christ is the Supreme Lord. He is Lord. So when he says to these Jewish leaders, Abraham longed to see my day. He rejoiced to see my day. And he did see it. And he was glad. So I want to go back to an encounter that Abraham had with Jesus. If you've got your Bible, would you please go to Genesis chapter 18, please? Genesis chapter 18. And we're going to read an encounter that Abraham had with Jesus. You see, God has designed the universe in a way that Jesus can enter into it anytime he likes. And in the Old Testament, when Jesus entered into the world, these are known as an appearance of Christ. And the fancy schmancy word for that appearing of Christ is called a Christophany. You might want to note that down because there will be an exam in the foyer afterwards. A Christophany. It's an appearing of Christ. And, and in fact, the, the, the Old Testament is kind of full of these. And here's one of them. So it's interesting. We're in Genesis chapter 18, verse 1, and the Lord appeared. Now, I, I want to point out to you in your English Bible that the word Lord is, see that? It's capitals, L-O-R-D. Now, the translator is saying to you, I, we don't know how to render that original tetragrammaton. That, that it's, that's the word for Yahweh. Hebrew is a really interesting language. Every word in Hebrew is essentially three letters. It's quite amazing. And then what they do is they put a, a word, sort of, sorry, not a word, a, a letter on the front of it and maybe a letter or two on the back of it. And out of that, you can figure out, is it one person, two persons? Is it future? Is it past? Is it present? That kind of thing. And when they come to the, the name that God says to Moses, Yahweh, I am. The, the translators are going, we, we haven't got an English word for that. So what we're going to do is we're going to send it, we're going to give it to you in code. Capitals L-O-R-D. And you just got to know that's God. Not God's God. And no pagan God is described in the Bible as capitals L-O-R-D, Yahweh. There's only one Yahweh. So this is really important, and it comes from 
the word that they translate into English or the words they translate into English as I am. It's the divine name, Yahweh, I am. Ego, Amy in Greek. All right. So the Lord appeared to him, him being Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Hmm, where they come from? And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if, you have found, if I have found favour in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, Three sears of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And she said, She is in the tent. Hmm. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, you just need to get it around, around your head and heart that Sarah is well into her 80s. And if you just take a look around, you'll see several other people here who are well into their 80s. And you can go, does she, does, if, if it's a woman... Is she, does she look likely to have a baby anytime soon? And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah did exactly what you just did. She laughed. Now, she's in the tent over there. They're under a tree over here. Huh. saying, after I am worn out, my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? You see, there are times when God might say something funny to you. He hasn't very often said that to me, by the way. Oftentimes when he speaks, when I sense him speaking, it's not funny. And I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny now. I'm, I'm actually telling you, I want you to get this. I'm, I'm, this is Jesus speaking to Abraham and now about Sarah. He's just said something and she's laughed. Behind the laughter is as if. Right? We can see it readily. And there's something about Jesus saying, this is what I'm going to do. And someone laughing in scoffing at, I don't think so. Because it's not just, that's ridiculous. It's as if you have the power to do that. But if he is, go back to my title slide, the Lord, not just 
capital L and little O-R-D, but capitals L-O-R-D, the entire universe is held in his hand, it says in Colossians 1.15 down to verse 18. By his word, he sustains the very universe. Making an 86-year-old woman pregnant through miraculous means is not that big a deal when you consider it. Fortunately, we've got a lot of hindsight in our favour to see that, right? Sarah didn't. She laughed. You know the word, the Hebrew word for laughter is yitshak. And if you're into Hebrew, you'll know, oh, hang on, that's translated into English as Isaac. Where's Isaac? There you are. You're bowing your head over there, Isaac, in reverence. Isaac means a joke. No, it doesn't. It means laughter. It means laughter. You knew that, right? Yeah, you did. All right. So, so she's laughed, and this is like, oh, what a great name for a baby. Laughter. And that's Isaac. Yitzhak. So here's how Jesus responds to Sarah. You know, why, why did she laugh? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Just ponder that question for a moment. <laughs> Matthew 19, 26, it's repeated in the New Testament. Is there anything? In fact, it's repeated by Jesus in the New Testament. He's heard it before. He said it before. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, no, but you did. You see, I don't think he's in, like, this is not a playing around sort of mood, right? You're picking this up? This is really, really serious. Why is it serious? Why is this so serious? Because Jesus is speaking to the woman through whom he ultimately and her descendants would be born into this world. This is not a joke, Sarah. This is my future as well as yours. And when Abraham is shown by the Lord that from his descendants would come the one, Jesus refers to that in John 8, 56. He longed to see my day. And we read on, because I want you to see something about Jesus, the Lord. Then the men set out from there and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. You see, Christ and two heavenly beings, we sometimes use the catch-all word angels. These guys do not have wings. Most angels do not have wings. There's only one heavenly creature in the Bible described as having wings. And they're massive beings. They're called seraphim. And they have six wings. But ordinary heavenly messengers do not. And these two heavenly messengers can manifest as humans, manifest as humans. Not be human, but, but, but appear as humans. And they've come to Abraham because they're going to do some business. One was to set in plan and in train the plan of redemption, ultimately through Jesus Christ. Secondly, there was a bunch of other people in these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, who were completely insulting. Now, you've got to get the idea. The mood of the Lord at this point is not jovial. <laughs> 
there is something very, very serious going on in Sodom and Gomorrah that was a complete violation of who God had created mankind to be. This is serious. Now, Abraham's right there. He's right there in the midst of it. He's interacting with Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, pre-before Bethlehem. And here he is. And the Lord said to Abraham, Shall I hide from him what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation. Hear the... Pr- Hear the prophetic word that's now coming out from this visit. It's now unfolding. Sarah's going to have a child, just one child, Yitzhak, Isaac. And from him will come Jacob. Jacob, 12 sons, 12 sons, Judah. Then down the line, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. He will be a great nation. And all the nations of the earth shall be blessed through him, ultimately because through him comes Christ. And the Lord is saying, what I'm about to do, shall I hide it from such a special man with a special responsibility? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. This is an important point. There are certain promises God makes to Abraham, which Hebrews 11 says Abraham didn't see them all fulfilled. But then Paul writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, Paul says this, All of the promises given to Israel, which means, starting with Abraham, all of the promises given are yes and amen in Christ. In other words, all of the promises that God gave to Abraham were altered. All of the promises, land, people, people without number. That's you and me, by the way were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. There's a certain gravitas to God. You'll never hear me say, oh, the old man upstairs. Oh, man, you obviously don't know the Lord God of heaven and earth then. I will go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come up to me. And if not, I will know. What was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Rampant sexual immorality, almost certainly leading to things that human beings should not do to animals and should not do to young babies. And the heart of God was outraged. An outcry An outcry had risen to heaven. And now the one who sits on the throne of the universe in heaven has come down to earth to deal with it. This is a serious matter. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the Lord, Jesus, has sent the two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah. One to Sodom, one to Gomorrah. And Abraham standing there with the Lord. Abraham knows what the outcry is. He knows what's going on. He's not dumb. He's not, he's not unaware of what's happening. And he's concerned. 
Abraham drew near and said, and I want you to hear something about the heart of Christ in this exchange between Abraham and the, and the Son of God. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham asks. Now why is he asking this? Because he knows that his nephew and his wife and his nephew's children, daughters, live in, in Sodom. And if, and if you're going to destroy the whole thing, you're going to destroy my kin. And so suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and spare it for 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, which is a title of Jesus, by the way, which Jesus invokes in, his, in this discussion that we're seeing with the Pharisees. And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous people in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I've undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people living there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not my Lord be angry and I'll speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, oh, look, I'm pushing the envelope here. That's not in the Hebrew or the Greek or in English. I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Can you see? I, I want you to hear Christ is prepared to show mercy and grace. Old Testament. Old Testament. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, I let not the Lord be angry and I will speak again yet but once. But this one, suppose 10 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went on his way. Now, notice who stopped. Abraham stopped at 10. I wonder if he'd gone down to five. What would have happened? But I hope you can see the heart of Christ, the heart of God is not to destroy people. It's not to condemn people in judgment. He longs for you to return to him. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've done it with, no matter who knows what you've done, he longs for you. Because even in the Old Testament, he was the God of mercy. And today, because of the cross, he has displayed his mercy and his grace and his preparedness to forgive. And we're mindful of the, the thief on the cross who was crucified just beside him, 
who initially mocking Christ on the cross and then eventually he realized that he and his friend who was on the other side continued to mock Christ and then this this thief came to his senses and said what am I doing I know you're a righteous man you've never done anything wrong and you don't deserve to be on this cross and above Christ was this thing that's the king of the Jews written in four languages and this man turns to Jesus on the cross and says he says this will you please forgive me of my sins will you please grant me salvation and redemption that you came to deliver to all mankind how did he say it he said it with these clunky words and this is great news for those of us who don't know what the right words are to pray or what to do with your hands when you pray do you lift them up do you lift them to here do you go all the way? Do you lift them up? Do the palms down, palm to the side? What do you do? It doesn't matter. Be clunky in your prayer because this is how this criminal prayed. When you enter into your kingdom, remember me. Now, how the heck do you get forgiveness of sins and redemption and salvation out of that? I don't know. But Jesus did. And Jesus says, today, I promise you, you'll be with me in paradise. This should be a huge relief to those of us who've sinned and have done something wrong and we're ashamed of to know that we can just say the most clunky prayer right now to God and he can wipe the slate clean and give us a fresh heart and we can start again. So the Jews, now we're coming into back into John chapter 8, verse 57. If you've got that, again, if you've got that place there, you'll see the exchange continues. So the Jews said to him, scoffing, about the claim. What do you mean Abraham saw your day? What the heck are you talking about, you knew Abraham? How on earth could you know Abraham? You are not yet 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, remember that divine name? Yahweh. The divine name means I am. Talk about bad timing for Jesus in one sense or profound timing in the true sense, truly, truly, Jesus said to them, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Every Jew knew exactly what he was claiming at that point. You see, he is Lord. It's kind of like the, the landlord builds a house and he doesn't charge you rent and invites you to come and live in it. But he makes it very clear, it's my house. I can come anytime I want. It's mine. And that's how it is with the universe and Jesus. And we get to live in it rent free. Because he's Lord. And there was one lingering question up until Bethlehem. One lingering question in the universe. Sin has brought death. And you heard Earl share this over communion. Sin has brought death. Is death more powerful than God? What if God died? You even heard Earl use that expression. God died on the cross. Is death greater than God? And the Bible says in Romans chapter 1 that he declared himself. He didn't become. He declared himself Lord by being raised from the dead. He conquered sin and death. Jesus Christ conquered sin and death to declare himself Lord of all. 
You don't need to pray to Mary. You don't need to pray to a saint. You don't need to pray to anyone other than Jesus Christ. Why? Because he is Lord. Would you please stand with me? Let me give you this great, great concluding quote from Philip Yancey right near the end of his book. He says this, and it's so true. It is so true. No one who meets Jesus ever stays the same. You can meet with him right now. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you think you are from God, no matter how irrelevant you think church and Christianity is, right now, the Spirit of God can transform your heart, wash away your sin, and give you a brand new start, give you a new heart. You were created to worship God. If you'd like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select The Lordship of Christ Part 4 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, we don't have to wait until we've died and gone to heaven to experience the Lordship of Christ. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. Music